0: So when I was a kid, there was a, television, a televangelist on TV called Ernest Angley. Anybody know Ernest Angley? You remember Ernest Angley? Oh yeah. And old Ernest, he would, he, would, uh, he would heal people. You'd have the service where Ernest preached, and then at the end, people would come up for a healing. And this one time I remember, I was about eight or nine years old, it was Sunday evening, the God Channel was on the TV, I was getting ready to go to church, and Ernest Angley was on there. And a man came up after the service and he said, Pastor Angley, I haven't been able to quit smoking. And Ernest said, Brother, you got 16 cigar demons in you. And then he proceeded to try to heal the man. Now with some of the televangelists, when you're healed, you have to fall over. You've seen this on TV. Ernest, you didn't have to fall over, but you need to look visibly moved by whatever just happened. And this man apparently wasn't moved enough, so Ernest has done his, be healed. And the man's still not quite shaken. He tries again. And I was eight or nine years old when I saw this, and I swear to you, Ernest then cocked his hand back like this, and he went, be healed. And sure enough, the man was shaken. I'm not sure it was the power of God so much as being clocked between the eyes by Ernest Ainslie, by his palm, but the man was visibly shaken. And old Ernest would often reach his hand out towards the camera and he said, Those of you at home, touch the television screen and receive your healing. The television screen is a point of contact with my hand. Receive your blessing. It was part of his, part of his ministry. I love watching televangelists. I really do. I don't do it often, maybe two or three times a year. But for about 30 minutes to an hour, I can just soak up the show and have a good time. And then it starts feeling a little icky when you realize some of these guys are cheating people out of their life savings. A little icky, and I have to turn the channel. But for that first 30 minutes or so, I'm enjoying it. There's another one on TV, he's still on TV, called Rod Parsley with Breakthrough Ministries. And he'll talk sometimes about God wants to reap a harvest in your life. And so he says that you have to sow seed money. A faith seed money. And guess where these pastors always want you to sow your seed money? With them. Sow your seed money with them. Well, these pastors, and there's innumerable others, they're part of what's known in America as the prosperity gospel. And it's a kind of faith that says, if your faith is strong enough, If you believe enough in God, then your life is going to happen like it's supposed to. You're going to have your health. You're going to have your wealth. There's a professor at Duke University called Kate Bowler who studied the prosperity gospel movement for over a decade now. In fact, she wrote one of the definitive books on the history of this particular movement. And so she's been to dozens and dozens and hundreds of church services in churches that align themselves with the prosperity gospel movement. And of her experiences in the Prosperity Gospel Church, as Bowler says this, she says, I would love to report that what I found in the Prosperity Gospel was something so foreign and terrible to me that I was warned away. But what I discovered was both familiar and painfully sweet the promise that I could curate my life, minimize my losses and stand on my successes. And no matter how many times I rolled my eyes at the Creed's outrageous certainties, I craved them just the same. The Creed of the Prosperity Gospel is a very American Creed. We have a desire to control our lives, to have power over our lives, to just believe I can say the right things, I can do the right things, I can work hard enough that life is going to work out for me just like I want it to because God wants it to be so as well. And when we read the the story of Lazarus in the Gospel of John, we can be tempted to read that story in the same way. Because Lazarus' story is a story where the miracle happens. Where the terminal diagnosis is overcome and Lazarus lives to take more breaths. It's a beautiful story of faith in many ways. If you read earlier in the the 11th chapter of John, you'll find out that Lazarus has been sick for some time. And Mary and Martha, loving their brother and loving Jesus, know that Jesus can heal their brother. And so they sent word to Jesus where Jesus was. Our brother Lazarus, the one whom you love is sick. Please come and heal him. And We read in the Gospel that Jesus continued to do His ministry for several days before He began to make His way to Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus were. And in the meantime, we come to learn that before Jesus gets to Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. When Martha hears that Jesus is on His way, She runs to him to meet him along the way. And she makes a beautiful confession of faith in many ways. She said, Lord, if you had been there, my brother wouldn't have died. That's a feeling some of us know. God, if you'd just been there, it would be different. And then she says this, But I know even now that God will give you what you grant. And Jesus says, your brother's going to live again. And she says, I know in the resurrection. And He says, no, no, no. I am the resurrection. And we get that beautiful, beautiful verse. In in verse 25 where Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in Me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, I believe that. And as Martha begins to make her way back home, she tells Mary, who's been at home with the other mourners in the house of mourning over the loss of her brother. And when she gets word that Jesus is on her way, she too runs to Him. Her confession of faith in Jesus is the same as her sister's for the first part, but not quite the second. She says, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. If only you'd been here, God, this wouldn't have happened. And we get a moment where we see the compassion of Jesus towards Mary and Martha and those who were mourning the loss of Lazarus. Verses 33-35 through we read, Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her were also weeping. He was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have You laid Him? They said to Him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, Jesus began to weep. Jesus is moved in his heart and weeps at the sight of his friends' mourning and pain. They then take him to the tomb and they said, No, Lazarus isn't just dead, he's very dead. In the Jewish tradition, first century Palestine, when you died, you needed to be buried within a day. And they would wash the body. The family and friends would wash the body. Put ointment on it and spices, and they would wrap the hands and wrap the feet and wrap the face. And they put Lazarus, as we read in this, into a tomb that's cut into the side of a rock face with a rock rolled in front of it. And they said he's been dead for four days, which meant he was not coming back. Decay had set in. And Jesus then says His prayer. And He says, you're going to see the glory of God. And then those powerful words, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is a story where the miracle happens. Because sometimes the miracle happens. Sometimes it feels like God shows up at the right moment. Sometimes it feels like God shows up and snatches joy from sorrow's grip. And we see the miracle happen. This Lazarus moment that Mary and Martha had ached for when Lazarus is called back to life. Two and a half years ago, my dad was visiting us here in Nashville. It was a big deal for my dad to come here because my dad has lived with chronic pain, chronic illness uh, since just before I was born. He's a a degenerative form of arthritis. It's in the rheumatoid family. So he lives every day of his life in excruciating pain. And it's the type of arthritis that attacks your whole system and your whole body. So the fact that he was going to be able to make the trip up here was such a blessing. We had a great weekend with him. Uh, It was my spring break. It was that time of the semester when I had spring break. My wife was teaching at the time, so she didn't have spring break. So we really wanted to make sure that first weekend he was here was a special time for us as a family. So Sunday morning rolls around. We had gotten in Friday night, had a couple of good days. Sunday morning rolls around. After church, we're standing outside the guest bedroom where Dad is sleeping. And because of his illness, if Dad's asleep, I usually let him sleep because sleep's a difficult thing for him. So we're sitting there deliberating. Do we wake him up or not? Do we wake him up or not? And we decided since Megan wasn't going to get to see him as much for the rest of the week since she was working, that we would wake him up. So we wake dad up, we go downstairs, I go get some food, bring it back from a takeaway place, set it down on the table, we, we I reach my hands out for my wife and for my dad so that we can say the blessing, and I look to my left and my dad is slumped over the table. And I say, dad, daddy, daddy. And I couldn't rouse him, and I start shaking him. And he has these very blue eyes that were just staring off into nothing. And I take him to the ground, and I'm thinking, is this a heart attack? Is this a stroke? Is this a seizure? And he seemed not to be breathing, and so I started CPR on him, pumping his chest, pumping his chest. I remember thinking, I hope I don't break his sternum. And then I thought I would rather him be alive and me have to apologize for cracking his sternum than for me not trying hard enough. My wife calls 911. She's on the phone with 911. She remembers that one of our neighbors is a doctor, but we don't know which townhouse he lives in, so she runs to get a neighbor while I'm there with my dad doing CPR on him for about two minutes when suddenly our neighbor, Chirag comes in who's a doctor. He starts counting off the breaths and counting me off as I'm doing chest compressions on my dad. About a minute later, a woman who I've never seen in my life walks in and starts taking off my dad's shoes and socks and feeling his feet for a pulse. I don't know who she is, but I can tell she knows her way around the body. And she looks at me and she says, do you want me to take over? And I said, absolutely. But I hold my wife as we watch this happening on our dining area floor. And I think, is this how I'm going to see my 69-year-old dad leave this earth? And I thought, at least he's with us, you know? At least he was in our home with us. About two minutes later, the EMS are there. They're doing the oxygen. They're doing the chest compression. Someone loads up the defibrillator. Boom, he's not back. Boom, he's not back. They're working with him. We go to the hospital. I ride in the ambulance. We get to the hospital. To make a very long story short, my dad codes four more times in the hospital. So he has lost a heartbeat five times at least in that little bit of time. A 69-year-old man in bad health. They finally get him back to the ICU a couple of hours later. And I walk in that room and I see 18 different medicines running into my dad. A ventilator tube down his throat. Tubes in both arms and his neck. A tube in his femoral line. And I pray to God, God, I prayed almost every day when I was a child for you to heal my dad. And you never did. Preserve him now, God. Preserve him now. And we didn't know for three or four days if he was going to live. And we didn't know for another week if he was going to be cognitively intact. But somehow or other, in that moment, we received our Lazarus moment. And my dad came back to us. I've been told by doctors, if you lose your heartbeat five times, the chances of survival for whoever that happens to are very well south of 1%. And anyone who does come back to have a sustainable heartbeat after that, to have cognitive function is off the charts. It's crazy statistically. Does that make sense? Our neighbor who came in and helped with the CPR, the doctor, he began that morning in Houston, Texas, and was not supposed to be home until 5 or 6 o'clock that night. But he had family in town, and he thought, I'd love to get home early. So he checked to see if he could get an earlier flight. He got an earlier flight. The woman who came in, who I'd never seen before in my life, was his mother-in-law, who was a recently retired doctor. So, within seconds of my dad going into cardiac arrest, I was on him with CPR. Within two minutes or so, two doctors were on him. Had we let my dad sleep that morning, he would be dead. Had he been in South Carolina living alone like he lives, he would be dead. In that moment, I feel like we got the healing, we got the gift of my dad. And now, when I see my 71-year-old father hold my toddler son, I feel it as a very real blessing. Sometimes, it seems like God shows up at just the right moment and snatches joy from the grips of sorrow. But sometimes, it feels like God doesn't give us a miracle. The day I graduated Baylor University, we found out my mom had cancer. My parents had been divorced by that point about ten years. My mom was forty six years old, had just moved to new york new york it uh, 's Long Island, three to six months before that. and we find out that she has cancer. I spend the first summer there after, uh, after undergraduate, when I was getting ready to go to seminary. I move in with her on Long Island, and we go to different doctors to try to figure out what kind of cancer it is. They remove the tumor that had grown under her arm. And they found out that she had metastatic melanoma. Not the diagnosis you ever want to receive. And I prayed fervently for her, just like I had for my dad when I was a child. Just like I did for my dad at this other moment in his life. She did two experimental treatments at Sloan Kettering, which is the best, one of the best cancer hospitals you can go to in the world. She got the best treatment she could get. For three and a half years, she fought. During the second experimental treatment, I lived with my mom. I took a semester off of seminary, and I lived with my mom. And I helped her continue to work. She wanted to work. For her at that moment in her life, in her late 40s, to stop work meant to give up on life. And she refused to do that in the face of cancer. But I watched her come home every day. After 12 and 13 hour work days in New York City, she would come home and collapse on the couch and look like a corpse already. And she was coming home one day from work to go to the subway where they were doing some construction around Times Square. She fell and broke her patella. And finally, undergoing cancer treatment, with a broken patella, she realized, I can't keep going on. And so she moved down to South Carolina and she got to see her second grandbaby born. And that second experimental treatment seemed like it was working. We felt like we had been given hope. And at the end of October 2004, she called and said she'd been feeling sick for a while. I said, go to the doctor. She said, well, I don't want them to think I'm a hypochondriac. I said, mom, you have stage 4 metastatic melanoma. They're not going to think you're a hypochondriac. So finally, after feeling sick for about a week more, she went back. And sure enough, she got the scans and called me and she said, the cancer's back and it's all over. I made my way back home and three and a half weeks later, we buried my mom. Sometimes it feels like God snatches joy from sorrow's grip and sometimes it feels like sorrow wins the day. Sometimes the Lazarus moment comes and sometimes it doesn't. In her memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason, and Other Lies I've Loved, Kate Bowler, the church historian I mentioned earlier, the one who studies the prosperity gospel, tells of her own story of cancer and of facing her own mortality. In many ways, Bowler had had a very, uh, we'll say it, call it successful life, a beautiful life. She met a boy when she was 15 and she fell in love with him. She came to America from Canada, went to undergraduate, then did her PhD at Duke University. Right out of her PhD program, she's hired into a tenure-track position at Duke. No small feat that either. She's married to the man she loves. They're scraping by uh, in their 20s, buying IKEA furniture like you do in your 20s and 30s if you're me. She makes it through a struggle with physical illness. They make it through fertility issues and have a child. And then when she's 35, she begins to have abdominal pains. Very severe ones. So much so that she would have to hold the wall with one hand and her stomach with another when the sharp pains would come and then they would relent. And she went to doctor after doctor. And they didn't give her any diagnosis that would stick. She became frustrated as you would after months of this. And finally, she was in a GI surgeon's office and she yelled at the doctor and said, I'm not leaving here until you tell me what's wrong with me. And begrudgingly, that doctor ordered a CT scan. In less than a day, they called her back and they said, you're going to have to come into the hospital. It's everywhere. And she said, what's everywhere? And they said, Cancer. She says, one moment I was a regular person with regular problems and the next I was someone with cancer. There was a before and now there was an after. She was told in the coming weeks that there was a survival rate of 30-50% to for people with advanced colon cancer like hers. And by survival rate, they meant someone who lived more than two years. She began to look at her life much differently. She found out that she had a genetic mutation that actually meant that some uh, new studies would be open to her so that she might get a better outcome. The book ends with her finding out that she has what's called non-curative cancer But it means just what the Word says, non-curative. It means it's not the kind that will take her immediately, but it's the kind that she will always have to manage and try to manage. And so now, with a small child, as she moves into her her late 30s, she's confronting a life that means treatment scans. Treatment scans. Finding out every two months if the cancer is staying away or if it's coming back. Sometimes the miracle happens. Sometimes it doesn't sometimes we and friends and people we know and love are left in a terrible game of waiting to find out. As we look at the Lazarus story, it's easy to see how this story can play in to that idea that just if there's faith enough, everything will be okay. But in our real lives, we find that not to be the case. We know that everything isn't okay. That the miracle doesn't always happen. But as we look at this story, I think that we can also find some deeper truths to hold on to in those times when the miracle doesn't happen. The first moment like that I find in the story in a meaningful way happens when we read that Scripture. Jesus began to weep. We don't serve a God who leaves us in our sorrow and leaves us in our brokenness, but rather a God that is with us in our sorrow and with us in our brokenness. In her memoir, Bowler talks about those moments after she found out about her diagnosis. And she said, my first feeling wasn't anger, even though anger comes. She said, My first feeling was though I were floating on a sea of love. And she said, I know that that feeling will pass and the intensity of it has passed. But she said, That feeling left an imprint on her soul that she knows as she goes through this, she doesn't suffer alone, that God is with her in the midst of it when we suffer and we walk through our valleys, when it seems like sorrow has a grip on our lives and our families' lives, we don't suffer alone. Jesus began to weep. And I believe the heart of God still draws close to those of us who are suffering. And the other part that I find great hope in is when Jesus says of the dead man Lazarus, unbind him and let him go. Don't let the grave clothes hold him back. Set him free. You see, when Lazarus was healed, he was still healed into a body that was corruptible. He was still healed into a body that will die again. When my dad was brought back from the edge, he was brought back still into his broken body that still feels pain. So all of our miracles here are still into the bodies that are corruptible. And I believe that we are called to live in the face of death and in the face of sorrow with lives that are unbound because we have been called forth to live in Christ Jesus. Lazarus' resurrection was into a corruptible body and it prefigures the resurrection of Jesus into the body that is incorruptible. Into the bodies that you and I believe as Christians we will inhabit when we live more fully into that truth that Jesus is the resurrection and is the life. It would be wonderful sometimes to believe the man on the television... To believe that if we just believed enough that our sorrows would go away. To believe that we could just touch the TV screen and He would take it away. And sometimes our Lazarus moments happen. And sometimes they don't. And sometimes we're left in an awkward, terrible waiting in between those two. I'll close with one of Kate Bowler's thoughts. As she confronts her own mortality and the response of her friends and family to it, and the response of the Christian community to her suffering, she says this, what would it mean for Christians to give up that little piece of the American dream that says, you are limitless? She goes on to say, everything is not possible. What if being people of the Gospel meant that we are simply people with good news? God is here, she says. We are loved. It is enough.